Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time that we can gather under your word. I thank you for making us the body of Jesus and for giving him to us as our loving head. God, I pray now that as your word comes, it would not come forth in word only, but it would come forth in power and in full conviction and in the Holy Spirit. God, and I pray that, that you would give me uh, grace to accurately divide your word and to preach Christ and him crucified in such a way that uh, all of our faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but would rest on your power. We pray that you would do this again for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, please open your Bibles to the book of Joshua. We've preached our way through chapters 1 through 19 and come today to chapter 20. As we turn there, let me remind you where and how the book of Joshua fits into the great story, the true story of how God is at work in the world to display his glory by saving a people for himself. So long ago, God promised an old, childless man named Abraham. He made a promise that Abraham's family tree would would become a great nation, which was later called Israel. They would be a people for God. And ultimately, God's plan was to bring a savior from that one nation who would redeem sinners for God from all the nations. And leading up to the book of Joshua, God has rescued his old covenant people out of Egypt, and then he formally established them as his people at Mount Sinai when he gave them his good laws and entered into a covenant relationship with them. And now in the book of Joshua, God is making good on his promise to give ancient Israel the land of Canaan. So he is finishing in Canaan the redemption of his people that he began in Egypt. And God establishes Israel in Canaan as something like a new Adam in a new Eden, a people that God has made for himself, living under God's rule in a place where God dwells among them. The first part of the book of Joshua was all about Israel conquering the land of Canaan, And God gave Israel the land. The second part of the book of Joshua was all about Israel dividing up the land. And God apportioned the land into distinct inheritances, an allotment for each tribe of Israel. And if you look at the end of chapter 19, the last verse that we preached, that signaled the end of the second major section of the book. Look at 1951. These are the inheritances that Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the father's houses of the tribes of the people of Israel distributed by lot at Shiloh before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And listen to this. So they finished dividing the land. Done. 
That part of the book of Joshua is done. Some of you say, Amen. <laughs> but now that the land is conquered and all divided, each tribe with their own inheritance, God gives instruction in chapters 20 and 21 for some special cities that he wants established in the land, dispersed throughout all of the tribal allotments. God calls for the establishment of 48 special cities throughout these inheritances. 48 cities for the priests of the tribe of Levi. And six of those cities were to be designated as cities of refuge. And we're going to see that God designed these cities to help ensure that his people would live in a land of justice and true worship as he dwelt in their midst. Uh, Back in Numbers 35, God gave the initial instructions for Israel about these cities. And after describing these cities, those for the Levites and the cities of refuge, the Lord gave this as the rationale for why he was establishing these cities. Numbers 35, 34. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. So in calling for these cities, God takes action to ensure that his people, whom he has gathered around him in his presence, that they would be holy, that they would not defile the land and how they related to one another and how they related to him. These cities are part of the Lord's plan to try and ensure that his people would do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with God. And I hope that this morning that you expect and desire for God to confront and comfort you personally through this living word. This is not an ancient history textbook. This is the living word of God. There will be two main points today. The cities of refuge in chapter 20. And they teach us about the justice of God amongst his people. And the cities for the Levites in chapter 21, they teach us about the provision of God amongst his people. So let's look now at chapter 20 together. We'll see the justice of God amongst his people. So remembering the dividing of the land is freshly finished. And then we read in verse 1, Then the Lord said to Joshua, So you see God taking the initiative to establish these cities. The Lord said to Joshua, verse 2, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses. So God calls for cities of refuge or or cities of asylum. And that raises an important question. Uh, These cities are supposed to provide refuge for whom? And importantly, these cities are supposed to provide refuge from whom? Verse 3 answers these questions. Look at it. Verse 3, appoint cities for refuge that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. So the city is supposed to provide refuge for a manslayer. Uh, That is the one who kills another person 
unintentionally. Um, the one who sheds the blood of another without intent, unknowingly. He didn't intend to harm him to any degree. And this city is supposed to provide refuge from the avenger of blood. Uh, that word avenger is translated elsewhere in the Bible as the kinsman redeemer. Or the kinsman redeemer of blood. This avenger would be a near relative of the slain person who would have the right in Israel to pursue the killer of his relative and enact justice by taking his life. Now this is, uh, of course, in accordance with Genesis chapter 9. Right after God brought judgment on the whole earth um, through a global flood in the days of Noah. And God did that, he said, because the whole earth was filled with violence. Well, God knew that flooding the world was not the ultimate answer to man's sin problem. And that the world would again fill with violence. And so he gave these instructions to Noah after the flood. Genesis 9, 5 and 6. For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So in ancient Canaan, a murderer could rightly be put to death by this avenger of blood um, for shedding blood and killing a person made in God's image. Yet, God knew it was possible in this fallen world for a person to be killed unintentionally. And in that case, putting to death the manslayer may only add another instance of shedding innocent blood in the land. So actually, the very same principle of God's justice that permitted the avenger to kill the murderer also prevented the avenger from killing the unintentional manslayer. So so this whole system of the avenger of blood and the city of refuge illustrates a very basic but very important principle of God's justice. God's justice seeks to protect the innocent and punish the guilty. Both. Proverbs 17, 15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. That means he hates those things. So friend, do not despair without hope when you see the innocent suffer or the guilty go unpunished. God is watching. These things are an abomination to him and he will make it right one day. Wait on him. These cities of refuge prove God's commitment to justice for the guilty and the innocent. And that commitment of God has not changed. There are probably people in this room who in some way are living contrary 
to God's desire to see the innocent protected and the guilty punished. That could be by commission or omission. And if you're aware of that, you should turn from that. And make things right as much as you can before the day of God's justice comes. And God is willing to be gracious to you. God is willing to be gracious even to people who have done things that are abominable to him. And the cross of Jesus proves it. But you must turn away from your sin and make amends with those whom you're sinning against if you can. And then trust alone in the work of Christ as counting for you personally. This is the good news for guilty sinners. That Christ was punished in our stead on the cross. So that all who trust in him can be pardoned and even protected as if we're innocent. Like Christ himself was. So how is this city of refuge system supposed to work? We learn in the next few verses, beginning in verse 4. Look at that now. He, this is the manslayer, shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, They shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. Look also at the first part of verse 6. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment. So the manslayer would flee to this city and state his case and the elders of the city would take him in. And provide a place for him. And then that man would stand before the congregation who would make a judgment concerning whether or not he was guilty of murder. And if he was found guilty of murder, he would be sent out of the city to be found by and die by the hand of the avenger of blood. So then the questions that needed to be answered as framed by verse 3 and verse 5. What was his intent, and was there hatred for his neighbor in his heart? So here we have illustrated a second principle of God's justice. God's justice considers the intentions of the heart. When the Lord called for the institution of these cities in Numbers 35, uh, he gave some test cases to help Israel adjudicate these matters properly. I'm going to read some of those to you. Numbers 35, starting in verse 16. If the manslayer struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. If he struck him down with a stone tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if he struck him down with a wooden tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. And if he pushed him out of hatred or hurled something at him, lying in wait so that he died, or in enmity struck him down with his hand so that he died, then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. But if he pushed him suddenly without enmity 
or hurled anything on him without lying in wait, or used a stone that could cause death, and without seeing him, dropped it on him so that he died. Though he was not his enemy and did not seek his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood in accordance with these rules. God gives more test cases in Deuteronomy 19. Uh, He said, if anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past. Here's verse 5. Here's another test case. If someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes the neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. The man does not deserve to die since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. Notice that the issue is not whether or not you intended to kill the person, but rather whether you intended to do harm to the person, whether or not there was hatred in your heart. If you push someone with the intent to harm out of hatred, and they end up dying as a result of it somehow, you are a murderer. So what makes you a murderer is not the intent to murder, but the hatred in your heart, the anger in your heart, the desire for another's harm. If your intent was malicious, even if not literally murderous, you are a murderer. Even if you didn't intend to kill him, it doesn't matter. You intended to harm him. And so the thing that made you guilty of a crime punishable by death was the intent to harm. It didn't matter how badly you intended to harm. To what degree you still intended their harm. So here's here's the principle. The very presence of malevolence in your heart for someone else It doesn't matter to what degree gives you the heart of a murderer in God's eyes. More on that thought in just a bit. The God of perfect justice looks upon the intentions of the heart. So so this language um, in Joshua 20 and Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 19 of hating a neighbor comes up repeatedly. I think that should make you think of the second greatest commandment in the law as Jesus taught us to identify it. In Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So God means for these cities of refuge to promote love of neighbor in the land. And anything that you do that does not arise from love of neighbor in your heart is contrary to God's idea of what is just and right. If you have not loved your neighbor as yourself, you are a criminal according to divine law. Of course, Jesus, many of you may be thinking of this, Jesus correctly teaches and draws upon this aspect of God's law in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Matthew 5, 21, Jesus said, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Just what we're talking about. The murderer would be liable to stand uh, before judges, before uh, the congregation, and have a verdict rendered concerning them. 
which would lead to their death. But Jesus continued and showed that this law always aimed mainly at the intentions of man's heart and not merely the actions of man's hand. Jesus said, I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Same phrase, liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Stand before right, the congregation as if on trial for murder. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. The God of justice looks into the heart of man and his, his word lays bare the intentions of your heart. And God's justice condemns as guilty and worthy of judgment not only violent actions, but also angry attitudes and insulting or abusive words. Do you think that you are righteous before God? Because if, if you lived in ancient Israel, you wouldn't have need to flee to a city of refuge because you never have actually killed anyone? Not so. The righteousness God requires is a righteousness that goes deeper than externals. Earlier in that same sermon in Matthew 5, Jesus gave words of good news for his disciples. He said, blessed, blessed are those who mourn over this kind of heart level sin. They shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for this kind of heart level righteousness. They shall be filled. This teaching about heart level murder is all over the New Testament. But of course we don't need to wait until the New Testament to see God's justice concerns the intentions of the heart. It's plain for us to see even in Joshua 20. We need to learn to repent of the attitudes of our heart. And that should fill us with hope because what we repent of is what God gives us grace to strive against and overcome. Moving on now to verse 6. We're going to have to start moving a lot faster. (laughs) Verse 6 illustrates our next principle of God's justice amongst his people. God's justice values man as his image bearer. And of course, we've already seen this truth illustrated in part. The reason why there needs to be a city of refuge in the first place is because God's justice values man as his image bearer. Remember Genesis 9, if you spill the blood of man, then your blood should be spilled for because God created man in his own image. But the image of God in man um, is illustrated in an even heightened way, I believe, in this passage. In verse 6, look at that with me. He, the manslayer, shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is at the high priest at the time, then, and not before then, the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home, to the town from which he fled. 
the unintentional killer is not guilty of murder. He is not to be given over to be killed, but neither can he go free. Even if he shed the blood of man completely unintentionally and unknowingly and with no hatred of the person in his past, still God values man as his image bearer to such an extent that the unintentional manslayer could be justly killed by the avenger if he left the city of refuge. His hands have shed the blood of an image bearer. That is a grave thing, no matter the circumstance of how it came about. Numbers 35, 26. If the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the boundaries of his city of refuge to which he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the boundaries of his city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood. One commentator pointed out that the city of refuge became then for the manslayer both a refuge and a prison. He could not go back to his own home, to his own town. And God warned Israel strongly that they were not to try and find any loopholes around requiring the unintentional manslayer to stay in the city. Numbers 35, 32. You shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. Why? Well, that would cheapen the justice of, of God, and especially, I think, the value he places on the lives of his image bearers. God cares very much about how we treat other people because they are made in his image. Consider just one application of this. In the New Testament, James 3, 9 and 10, says, With our mouths we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Uh, Too often, we don't calculate justice like God does because we do not give enough weight to the truth that every person is made in the image of God. And so we wrong and malign people all the time. And we don't always feel like we're committing a great evil because we forget this great truth of God's justice. Next principle also from this verse. God's justice must be satisfied through vengeance or atonement. What could make for a final reckoning of justice? A justice that sets things to right and and made the case of the manslayer a case closed. Final justice was not counted to this situation of the manslayer until either his own life was taken, justice through vengeance, or the high priest died, which I believe is justice through atonement. 
uh, together with most commentators, it seems. God counted the high priest's death of something of an atoning death. And by atonement, I mean a covering of sin and, and wrongdoing, a removal of guilt before God. So the, the stain of blood guilt on the hands of the unintentional manslayer was removed when the high priest died. And apart from this verse, apart from this happening, there was no way to atone for the manslayer's death other than his own death. Numbers thirty-five, thirty-three says, You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. So again, uh, the manslayer must himself die for this case to be closed. Or, when the high priest dies, the blood is washed from his hands such that he is free to leave the city of refuge and return home. And when the high priest dies, the rightful claim that the avenger had on the manslayer is permanently removed. There's some sense then, I think, that even the Lord seems to count the death of the high priest as a substitute for the death of the killer. Because as we just read, no atonement could be made for the shed blood except by the blood of the one who shed the blood. In previous instructions for the cities of refuge... Concerning this event when the high priest would die, the Lord said that the manslayer shall live in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest, and adds this phrase, who was anointed with the holy oil. So to be anointed with the holy oil was to be set apart for God and his purposes, like, like the tabernacle was, the temple and the altar of, of sacrifice was. And so noting the priest is anointed with the holy oil shows his association with the sacrificial system God set up for Israel. Sacrifices that the Old Testament teachers were considered substitutionary. The sacrifice died in place of the sinner because the wages of sin is death. And one of the high priest's main roles while he lived was to represent all of the people of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for their sins. And even, the Old Testament uses this language, even he would bear the sins of the people and of the tabernacle. And so the high priest's own death is treated as if, in some sense, it is substitutionary. And releases the manslayer from his guilt and his debt of bloodshed. It, it was as if, functionally speaking, at least, his death counted as the death of the manslayer before God. So he was free to go home. Can you imagine this scene? I mean, how often would this happen that a high priest would die? Not very often. Think of how full the cities of refuge would get with manslayers, waiting for this somewhat rare occurrence 
And then when the death of the priest was announced, a flood of men and women are in one moment set free to return to their homes. All of them, all of their blood guilt washed away. Can you imagine? The tears of joy that must have run down the faces of these men and women. I imagine that many of them probably started running for their homes. All these people in an instant functionally declared innocent of shedding blood. Their lives literally redeemed and restored by the high priest's death. Now how can we hear this and not think of the death of our great high priest? These instructions for the manslayer are not a prophecy about Jesus but they certainly do prefigure in some ways the work of Christ, much like the animal sacrifices did that the high priest would offer in the temple. So how can we hear this and not consider even the surpassing weight of glory of the death of our high priest? Remember, in Israel's cities of refuge, freedom from guilt was only declared for the unintentional manslayer who had not hated his brother in the past. What about those who had hated or desired harm on at least some level? Or those who had been sinfully angry? What about those of us? Well, the death of our high priest satisfies justice against and pronounces liberty for even hate-filled intentional murderers. Don't we celebrate that when we sing? The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree and died as our substitute so the blood could be washed off our hands for how we've used them to harm others in our murderous mouths which we have used to malign and curse and quarrel and insult, can be declared clean. And we can functionally be declared by the God of perfect justice not guilty for the anger in our hearts, the murder in our hearts. And even more, because of the death of our great high priest Jesus, and because he rose from the dead, Not only do we have the guilt of all our sin removed, but we also have the power of that sin broken so we can live new lives with new hearts so we don't have to be like we used to be anymore. And that glorious reality can be for you right now, for anyone who listens to my voice. And those who have trusted him. This is the reality that you need to learn to live out of and up to day after day after day. What an invitation. But a warning could also be issued, right? In the end, you will either be one who is set free by the death of the great high priest or you will find yourself as one Guilty being pursued by the divine avenger of blood. God himself has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. 
the psalmist repeatedly praised God himself as their refuge. The only safe place from God is in God, in Jesus Christ. You know, Hebrews 6.18, there's a little phrase in there where Christians are called, we who have fled for refuge. I don't know for sure, but perhaps this is alluding to these ancient cities that we read about in Joshua 20 and employing them as symbols of salvation in Christ. God's justice must and will be satisfied against your sin, either through vengeance or atonement. How blessed are all who take refuge in the Son. In the last portion of chapter 20, we find a final principle of God's justice. God's justice is for everyone, accessible and impartial. We see that, first of all, displayed in the locations of the cities in verse 7 and 8. Verse 7, so they set apart Kadesh and Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah, and beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland, from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth in Gilead, from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan, from the tribe of Manasseh. So three cities of refuge on the east side of the Jordan, three cities of refuge on, did I say east already? West side of the Jordan. And on each side of the Jordan, there was one in the northern part of the land, one in the central part, and another down South, and God had carefully instructed Israel to make it so. Numbers 35, he said, put three on the west side and three on the east side. Deuteronomy 19, he says, those three cities, you need to measure the distances and divide into three parts the area of the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession so that any manslayer can flee to them. So God wanted these cities to be accessible to everyone in Israel. God's justice is impartial. God's justice is for everyone. His desire was for no one in Israel to be denied his justice. The accessibility and impartiality of God's justice is also highlighted in verse 9, which says, These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the stranger sojourning, sojourning among them, that anyone who killed the person without intent could flee there so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. For all the people of Israel and for the stranger, sojourning among them, this justice, this refuge, this mercy, was for even non-Israelites living in their midst. The cities of refuge were for everyone in the land where God dwelled amongst his people. God's justice is impartial. You, being made in the image of God, meant to reflect him, including his justice in many important ways. Are you impartial like God? Or do you make distinctions among people, those whom you will love and care about and walk uprightly towards? And then the others, toward whom you feel no obligation. God expected his people, among whom he personally dwelled, to be characterized by 
peace with one another and impartial justice toward one another and true love for one another. And this same God dwelling among us by His Spirit because of His Son, He expects the same of us. You know, in Joshua, it says multiple times God gave Israel rest in the land by driving out their enemies. Well, God knows there are threats from the inside to that rest as well. The cities of refuge. Will Israel receive the peace and rest that God has given them and preserve it? Will we? Ultimately, we know that Israel did not in the rest of the Old Testament. Um, They polluted the land by shedding blood. We also know one day God will gather his people in a land where there will be no need for anything like cities of refuge. Because nothing unclean will enter it. And, and no murderer will have a portion there. And the heart murder of all his people will be eradicated. And that will be a kingdom ruled over by Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace... There will be no end. Come, Lord Jesus. Let me say a few things about the cities for the Levites before we end. Um, We've seen in the six cities of refuge the justice of God. Now we see in chapter 21 the provision of God amongst his people. Look at verse 1. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest, and to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel, And they, the Levites, said to them at Shiloh, in the land of Canaan, the Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in, along with their pasture lands for our livestock. So by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. So they finished dividing the land into all the tribal inheritances, but the tribe of Levi still had no place designated for them to live in. No place for their livestock and for their provisions. But this would not do in a land where God dwells in the midst of his people. So God provided for the material needs of his people. Note the means God used to bring about this provision for the Levites, to bring about the establishment of these cities. God had commanded it to be so, but then he worked through both the initiative of the Levites themselves and also the gifts of their brothers to make this a reality. In verse 1 and 2, the Levites approach Joshua and the other leaders, and they ask for these things. God provided for them as they took initiative to lay hold of what he promised. And they requested that it be given to them. And on a related note, God would provide for the Levites in an ongoing sense, in part through their work and initiative still, as as they would receive provisions from God's hand as they worked their livestock in these pasture lands. Also, the Lord provided for the material needs of the Levites through his people. Did you catch that in verse 3? By command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their 
inheritance. These are still the common means that God uses to provide for his people. We are taught to ask for our provisions from God and pray, Father in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. We are taught to take initiative and work the work that God gives to us and and calls us to. And we too are called to give to one another as each has need. And so God provides. Verses 4 through 8, and we don't have time to read um, these verses. 4 through 8 describe in overview fashion the cities and the surrounding pasture lands the Lord provided in the land for the Levites. And then verse 9 through verse 40 uh, takes a more in-depth pass through the same cities and names all 48 of them and shows how they were dispersed throughout all the other tribes' inheritances. And then there's a wrap-up statement beginning in verse 41. Look at that with me now. The cities of the Levites... You're still turning, aren't you? 2141. The cities of the Levites, in the midst of the possession of the people of Israel, were in all 48 cities with their pasture lands. These cities each had its pasture lands around it. So it was with all these cities. Uh, Now we need to remember why the Levites needed to receive cities and pasture lands in the inheritances of other tribes. Why did they not receive their own portion of the land like their brothers? Well, God wanted them scattered throughout the land. And there's a prophetic word about that in Genesis 49, verse 7, where God says Levi would be divided throughout the land. In the context there, actually, it's a divine curse, a punishment for the sins of Levi himself, the forefather of the tribe. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Uh, But as the great story continues, this curse on Levi is turned by God into a blessing for the Levites. Because then the Lord claims this tribe for himself and sets them apart to himself in a special way. They still receive no inheritance in the land of Canaan. They still are scattered throughout their brother's inheritances. But the reason God gives now is not cursed are you. But instead, he tells them that they have a different inheritance, which is God himself. Joshua 13, 33, to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. And practically speaking, what that means, the tribe of Levi receives God as their inheritance in that they became the priests for God. Joshua 18, 7. The Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. The Levites, as priests, were the ones chosen to serve God in his temple, in that most special of places where God chose to manifest his presence. They were chosen on behalf of the rest of the people of God and on behalf of the Lord for the people. And they would also be responsible throughout the whole land. 
not just, not just at the temple, but throughout the whole land, to teach the word of God and to spread the knowledge of God and to facilitate the true worship of God and to warn against uh, wrong expressions of the worship of God. As priests in Israel, the Levites were God's mediators between him and his people. They would mediate to God's people the law of God and the knowledge of God and the forgiveness of God and, and in a sense, the blessing of God and presence of God. So actually, the scattering of the Levites throughout the land was not only turned into a blessing for the Levites, it was turned into a blessing for all of the people of Israel and all of the strangers who lived in their midst. To have the Levites spread throughout the land was to have the true knowledge of God spread throughout the land and to have the true worship of God spread throughout the land. Listen to how Calvin puts it. Why it was necessary that the Levites should be dispersed among the different tribes, the readers may see in the books of Moses. But this dispersion had, indeed, been imposed on their forefather as a punishment for cruelty of which he had been guilty. But the disgrace of it had been converted into the highest honor by their appointment as a kind of guardians in every district to retain people in the pure worship of God. It is true they were everywhere strangers, but still it was with the very high dignity of acting as stewards for God and preventing their countrymen from revolting against piety. So in establishing cities for the Levites, God provided for the spiritual needs of his people. The cities of refuge encouraged true justice in the land, and the cities of the Levites encouraged true worship. The cities of refuge cultivated love of neighbor in the land. The cities for the Levites cultivated the love of God in the land. God was good to Israel to establish these cities in every place. And seeing the Levites carry out their duties, even seeing them leave uh, their designated city to go serve at, at the temple or tabernacle, would serve as a continual reminder of the devotion that the people owed to the Lord. Now I'll mention uh, two other ways quickly that these cities for Levites contributed to the spiritual well-being of those in Israel. First, the 48 cities include all six of the cities of refuge. Five out of six times in chapter 21, the name of the city is listed, and it's followed by a note explicitly drawing attention to the fact that, quote, this is the city of refuge for the manslayer, which means we're not supposed to miss it, that the cities of refuge were the Levitical cities. So how good of the Lord to ensure that these cities of justice and mercy would be full of the knowledge of God and his laws. And it's interesting even, too, that the Levites would be the ones uh, manning the cities of refuge, whereas in, when uh, Levi was cursed in Genesis 49, cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, it is cruel. It's a beautiful redemption that they would receive the cities of refuge. Second, the Lord was doing good to his people and providing for their spiritual welfare as he required them to give back a portion of what he had given to them. Did you notice that? 
God had given to each tribe their inheritance, and now God commanded his people that they give a portion of that away for his priests, for their brothers. God seeks our spiritual good today in similar ways, commending, commanding even our generosity and giving. We heard Pastor Dan preach just recently from Philippians 4. One commentator puts it nicely and succinctly like this. For Christians, the allotment of the Levitical towns from each tribe illustrates the principle of returning to God a portion of what has been given to them. These gifts are then used to support others in need and to encourage the proclamation of the faith. And I'll end by reminding you of one glorious truth that the New Testament teaches God has appointed for us a city. It is a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. This city is ultimately the one that even Abraham was looking forward to, Hebrews 13. As we live by faith in God's promises, we are strangers and exiles on the earth, but so we desire a better country, a heavenly one, and therefore God is not ashamed to be called our God because he has prepared for us a city. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. It is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. I know I've shared these verses with you before in these sermons. But you need to know, you need to remember that when God creates a new heavens and a new earth, that a holy city, a new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven from God And a loud voice coming from a throne will say, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. There will be perfect justice and perfect worship. And true love for God and neighbor forever and ever. Let's pray. God, we praise you that you have appointed for us a city. Would you give us grace to seek that city that is to come? Would you remind us that here we have no lasting city? Motivate us, God, to desire more the better country, that is, the heavenly one. And thank you for how you intended our encouragement uh, when you appointed these cities in ancient Israel. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do whatever needs to be done in the heart of anyone in this room uh, to the end that, that they would live lives that are more pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.